Welcome to Grace in Public, preaching and teaching in the heartland and all around the world. And now we'll go straight to our main message. The fourth saying on the cross, and that's what we're going to start with today. The fourth saying on the cross is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, listen very carefully. This is the only time that Jesus Christ ever expressed God is dear to him. 170 times he called him Father, and 21 times he called him My Father. In the Old Testament, God was never addressed as Father only to the nation of Israel, 14 times. But now it's, My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why didn't he call him Father? 91 times total he called him Father. 21 times My Father. Now... My God, my God. The reason why Jesus, the Son of God, did not call him Father was because paternally our sins were upon him. So he had to address him judicially. The paternal relationship had to be put on hold. Now, three hours of spiritual darkness when Jesus Christ died spiritually to his Father in heaven. And when he said this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prayer was answered in in a single moment. And darkness that covered the whole earth gave way to light. Do you understand that? And Diogenes of Egypt, the archaeologist that did not know Christ, in his archaeological writings, said that the time of darkness was exactly three hours, 30 A.D., and what he equal three o'clock in the afternoon, light instantly replacing darkness. Not knowing Demetrius, the great archaeologist, he said at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, on Friday, August 9th, in that year, darkness gave way to light at 3 p.m. in the afternoon in his archaeological writings. That's interesting. Philokagon, another archaeologist, said in one of the greatest periods of darkness ever recorded in archaeology, It all ended at 3 p.m. on Friday, 30 A.D., August 9th. Now, if I was a teenager, that would motivate me to believe the Bible. If I was whoever I was, as the facts were accumulated, I would be overwhelmed with the factual, actual reality and dogmatic truth of the Word of God. Well, the prayer was answered. Now, why was it that no one in the Old Testament ever addressed God as Father, except the nation Israel as a nation? The reason why we're allowed to do it today and we're told to do it is Jesus said, I go to my Father and your Father. 
in John 20, verse 17. And what he was saying was this, because you're born into God's family, you're members of God's royal family, you're his children by faith, you've been born again in the right age, and just like Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit in his physical birth, you're born of the Holy Spirit in your new birth, and God can now be called Abba Father. Now, the fifth word on the cross was, I thirst. And that's interesting. Jesus is taking on the sins of the whole world. The first three hours, the wrath of men. The wrath of God. And with this identification, with our sins, and the wrath of God upon our sins, he cried significantly, I thirst. Same exact words that the rich man said in hell. In the fires of darkness. The next word that he said is very unique. In the arches, in the Greek world of accounting, in their arches, there were many bills found where people had paid their bills. And upon these bills in the Greek arches, over the bill found was paid in full. So, tetelestai means it is finished and is paid in full. Now, his seventh saying was in Luke 23, 46. After having said it is finished, Father, notice now he says, Father, why? His fellowship back with the Father has begun again. The wrath of God is all over. So now it's not my God judicially addressing deity, but he's back as the Son of the Father. And he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, always before, when people died, they died, and then their head would go down to their chest the moment they died. But the Word of God says in John 19 that Jesus bowed his head because it was a voluntary death. He voluntarily died, as John 10:17 said. His death was voluntarily. And he had to discharge his spirit to the Father and dispel his soul into hell and his body would go into the grave. But he dispelled it because no man could take it from him. So as we understand his physical death, we want you to realize what happened. The temple with the veil thick from top to bottom, was rent. Now, in the Old Testament, when the high priest would come out of the Holy of Holies and make it, that meant that Israel's sins had been forgiven. And they would clap and cheer out on the outer court and raise their voices and clap with a standing ovation because it meant their sins were forgiven. Josephus, writes when the veil was rent from top to bottom 
a crowd of born-again Christians screamed and hollered because they knew that they could go directly to God the Father, to the throne of grace and throne of mercy without anything in between, any time, 24 hours a day. So there was a clapping and shouting and screaming. They understood what the rent veil meant. Had it gone from bottom to top, men could do it. But it went top to bottom. Only God could do it. Now there was a way into the Holy of Holies. But there's something else that happened. In John 19.34, the moment that happened, one quarter of a second after that happened, the soldier pierced the side of Jesus. Because if you're going to go into the Holy of Holies, you'll go in through his blood. The veil was rent and the blood was right there being shed from the side of the Son of God. It's interesting. There are so many things written about this amazing occasion. In Jewish history, I'm, I'm talking about unbelievers. Or at least people who were not believers because of ignorance. And this is what they wrote three, four, five hundred years later. 30 A.D., the Talmud said, something unusual happened in the temple. There were seven lights, and the light in the middle went out. And just like the three loaves in one bag for the Passover, and the middle loaf was the only one used, speaking of the incarnation of Christ, the light in the middle went out. And this writer said in the Talmud, it was almost like deity had paid for people's sins. Another writer said, the doors were so heavy it took eight men to open them. On one day on Friday in 30 A.D., at three o'clock in the afternoon, the heavy doors opened by themselves through an earthquake. Interesting. And as the archaeological evidence and the historical evidence continually builds and continually is revealed, there is one thing after another that is spoken. And when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, the Word of God said that not a bone would be broken in Psalm 22, and He gave up His Spirit, and then they came. Within five minutes, the two thieves died, one that went to be with him, and they broke their legs because that's what you did in those days. You broke the legs in crucifixion. And they nailed your feet to what they called a wooden ledge. And so every time you tried to breathe, you couldn't. It was most difficult to breathe. Suffocation was going on all during your crucifixion because you would in order to breathe, you've got to lift your feet up. But you couldn't lift your feet up because nails were in his feet. But they never broke Jesus' legs because he'd already died. And the scriptures said they wouldn't. Then came the unusual principle. A criminal was to be placed in Rome in the tomb of a criminal. But Joseph of Arthur had a brand new tomb and he was rich. And our Savior was placed in the tomb of a rich man, not the tomb of a criminal. The father dignified his death. The tomb was inside a garden. We've been there. It's inside a garden. Adam 
died in the first garden. The second Adam brings life in a tomb in a garden. The place of the skull is said to be exactly where Adam, the first Adam, was buried. I want you to see how unique that even the Jews that do not believe in Christ, I want you to see how it works. They said, quote, quoted from the Talbot and also of uh, Josephus, the Jews knew for hundreds of years in Leviticus 16, that when the blood was placed from the first goat that died to the second goat, the scapegoat, they put a ribbon upon the head of the scapegoat. The moment that they began to release the scapegoat, the red ribbon would turn white, supernaturally. This was a great thing for the Jews. Isaiah 118, Come, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And God supernaturally took a red ribbon placed by the high priest upon the neck of the goat and the second that they released him the red ribbon would turn white now listen to this this is in Josephus it's also in the Talmud quoting the Jews could not understand it the rabbis could not understand it the priests could not understand it from 30 A.D. April 9th on, the ribbon never turned white. What does it mean? It means that the days of animal sacrifices are over. And the ribbon never turned white because of the one supreme sacrifice that would pay for our sins forever. Documentation after documentation, historical data, archaeological data, absolute data, that even if you were not a living believer, you'd be saved so quickly that it would shock Satan. And if you were a carnal believer, you desire to get right with God. Then comes the unique principle of the sealing of the tomb. And this is interesting. A round stone, very heavy, very huge, placed over the tomb a very strong rope around the stone placed in X-like fashion the Roman seal if you did anything to that seal you would be put to death before sundown you don't touch that seal that was the law of the Roman Senate and the stone touches the tomb itself and you could not remove the stone unless you broke the seal. Now the reason that this is so interesting is because an angel came, removed the stone, and broke the seal. What would the gods do? Arrest him? They were scared. The Word of God said they feared so deeply, were so frantically scared that they couldn't even walk away. They just stayed there stunned. It was up to them to arrest the angel. They didn't want any part of him. How are they going to explain it to Pilate, who later on would commit suicide in 36 A.D. because he would not release the Christ? How is it going to be explained to Antipas, who mocked Jesus and who would die of poverty and sane in 39 A.D. in what is now France?
as he was deposed by the Roman emperor when he tried to be a king. How are they going to explain it? To those in the civil trial and the religious trial, they can't. And the gods were so fearful. Now, the unique thing about this story is so often people say, well, the Bible contradicts itself, and I can give you the verses if you want to write them down. It says the Bible contradicts itself because in Matthew 26:16 he said after three days. Matthew 17:23 and 20:19 he said on the third day. Now we've given this answer on the radio in Genesis 42:17 and 18, and 1 Samuel 30:12 and 13, and 1 Kings 20. 29 in 2nd Chronicles 10:5 and 22 that always meant in the Jewish history just a part of a day and if something happened a part of a day they called it one day if it happened a part of a second day they called it two days if it had part of the third day they would say after three or on third it was something that was said throughout Jewish history once again no contradiction and so as Jesus Christ finished the work for us and beautifully paid for every single thing that we could ever or have ever done, I want you to think with me carefully as I quickly go over some of the things it meant for every single believer the rest of their life. Number one, it meant that we were ransomed forever. If you lost a child and somebody said you'd have to pay so much money for a ransom, you couldn't come up with the money, perhaps you would read Matthew 20, 28, where Jesus Christ was given a ransom of 1 Timothy 2, 6. I mean, all of our sins that accumulated throughout all of our lifetime and every single person in world history that ever believed on Christ, he gave his shed blood in an efficacious way to pay for a ransom for their sins. The second thing it meant was redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means not only to go to heaven, but to be bought back from the power of sin and power of Satan, the power of the world system. It means to be bought back to be redeemed in a new creation under a new covenant with a new mind and new emotions and new volition and a new provision that goes beyond the natural provision. It means to be redeemed and brought back in 2 Corinthians, in Galatians 3.13 and 2 Peter 2.1. Thirdly, it means reconciliation. Now, when you think of the barriers that were between God and us, we had the barriers of imputed sin, the barriers of personal sin, the barriers of infection from evil, the barriers of being hurt from the world system and became a part of it, the barriers of self-righteousness. And all these barriers were broken. And he reconciled us to God by himself and through his blood. No wonder the Word of God says He's reconciled the world unto Himself, but it says, though they must accept Him or go to hell, no wonder it says, Be ye reconciled to God. 
so that you have a ministry of reconciliation through the love of Christ and words of reconciliation through precise light. Thank you for tuning in. If you can, don't forget to send a tax-deductible gift to us. Your generous donation made to our program promotes this broadcast and once like it going out on the Internet and broadcast on local stations throughout the United States. So please prayerfully consider what you can give. Find out how to give your donation at www.graceandpublic.com Well, I hope you enjoyed that message. Such specifics. I always marvel at Dr. Stevens and the amount of study and concentration he must have taken to preach that message. We can study down to the minutest details and see incredible correlation and the, the scripture corroborates itself in its incredible illumination of truth and human nature. And you go through these passages, they're amazing last words spoken from the cross. But what struck me in hearing that message once again was Christ's relationship to his Father. Isn't that poignant? All of those times, 170 times, 21 other times where he says, My Father. And he had this great intimacy with his Father. And he gave it up to go to the cross. And Isaiah 53, verse 10, It pleased the Lord, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And it had to be done. Christ put aside the relationship of Father and Son to become sin, that we might have a restored relationship with God. So we're in Good Friday now, and we're going into Easter, and I think many of our listeners, many of you out there, everyone's in a different situation, isn't it? And Easter is a celebratory time in many cultures and in many places in the United States, and people come from far and wide to be with their family and celebrate this holiday, whether they believe in Christ or not. It's a national, international celebration. But people have different relationships with their family. Some have wonderful relationships where they can't wait to go home and spend time together. There's great intimacy and everyone goes to church together and there's meals and there and they get to see grandchildren and it's a joyous time. For others, it's not so much, and maybe they have family, but there's great conflict and strife. There's There are great problems. There are rifts that are between different family members, and it's a difficult time. I would say for many, many people, celebrations like this one and Christmas can be a very difficult time. And God, <laughs> he loves us so much. It, when we don't have family, he becomes our family. And we can see in Deuteronomy, it speaks many times all through that book about God making legal provisions. And he always puts this group together, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, the helpless one who's got no one to take care of them anymore, the stranger 
who is not financially settled, who doesn't have connections within the nation of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take the widow's raiment to pledge. Deuteronomy 24.20 And when thou beatest thou olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. And it shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. Deuteronomy 24.21 When thou gatherest the grapes of the vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. Hmm. You know, God loves people. He does. It's, it's a heart of our faith is that we've been restored. We have a relationship with a loving God. Amazing. After the cross, after the burial, after the resurrection, now Jesus standing, resurrected, seen by the women at the tomb for the first time. John 20, verse 17. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. The heart of the gospel that Christ died, was buried, was raised the third day, is now seated at the right hand of his Father. And he did all those things to restore us back to a relationship with our God and with our Heavenly Father. Psalm 68.5 says that God is a father to the fatherless, a judge of the widows, and is God in his holy habitation. We'd love to hear from you, so please go to our website and contact us. The web address is www.graceinpublic.com I hope today that you've enjoyed this message. I hope also that you have a wonderful family to go and spend this holiday with. And for those of you that don't, God loves you. And there is great provision for you in fellowship with Him. Anyone out there, if you don't know God as your Savior, if you don't know Christ and what He's done for you and received it as a gift to be on your account for your life, not just the sins of the world, but for your sins, for your life. God is waiting to be gracious to you and invite you into His family. And in that family, time will stretch out into eternity when this life is over. And we will have a supper table to return to where our Father loves us and we have brothers and sisters who we have great fellowship, great humor, great warmth and affection forever and ever. Would you pray a prayer with me? Lord, be my Father. Your Son, He died on the cross. I receive it now for the first time. I receive it as being for me. And I pray that you would rush into my life, that you would you would touch me, cleanse me, make me whole, save me, Lord. Not because I come with anything to give you. I come with empty hands, pleading the blood of your Son and asking you to do it because of what he's done. If you've prayed that prayer today for the first time, please contact us because... 
you are now in a family, in a great, big, large, happy family. And we love to help you get acclimated to that new life. God bless you this Easter. God loves you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.